Amen, friends. Before we open up God's word together, I'm going to pray for us one more time briefly, and then we will look at Genesis 22. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the way that you did not just surprise us out of nowhere with the gospel, but throughout the Old Testament, you were working in the circumstances providentially of the accounts uh, in the Old Testament to foreshadow, prefigure, predict, and prophesy the coming of the Lamb of God into the world who takes away the sins of the world. And we pray that you would open up by your spirit to us today, Genesis 22, and all of its glory and all of its power, and that you would impress upon us the goodness of the gospel, and having been depressed by it, that we would rest fully in and trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll see that we have provided Bibles. You can find the passage that we provided on page 16 of that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, I want to encourage you to take the copy that we provided as a gift from us to you. I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it in a few minutes. But I also want to encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you because we're going to look at it often in our time together. Uh, We come this morning to what is one of the most, if not the most, dramatic, emotionally gripping, and theologically profound chapters in the entire Old Testament. Uh, Throughout our study thus far in the book of Genesis, I've said that the book of Genesis traces God's promise to send an offspring of the woman to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. And I've also said that the stories, the true stories that we have encountered along the way are meant to shed light on who this offspring will be and how he will go about crushing the serpent and rescuing God's people. And what happens in Genesis 22 doesn't just shed a tiny ray of light on this coming Messiah. Genesis 22 is like a massive floodlight illuminating significant aspects of who he will be and what he will do. So a a weird question at this point in my summer. Do we have any Wheel of Fortune fans here? Raise your hand. You can admit it. Wheel of Fortune fans, right? So uh, this this is what's going on here and what's been going on through the book of Genesis. You know, one of those big phrases pops up, one of those huge puzzles on the board, tons of letters, right? And then the first contestant's like, uh, can I get a C? And it's like, ding, one C. Well, that's not going to help. There's like 50 letters up there. Can I, get a, can I get a J? Ding, well, we've got one J. You're, you're going to have to go again, right? Thus far in the book of Genesis, the stories that we have encountered are like, ding, one letter that will tell you about who this coming Messiah is and, and how he will rescue his people. But when we come to Genesis 22, we say, can I get an A? And it's like, ding, 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 ding. Right, you're like, okay, that puzzle is starting to come into view. I can't guess it quite yet, but I have a really good idea now of what it's going to be. In the same way, Genesis 22 is like that for us. Who is this offspring and what will he be? And how will he save us? Genesis 22, 
has major things to teach us about that. So without further ado, I want us to go ahead and get to it. Open up with me, if you're not already, to Genesis 22. I'm going to read the passage for us now. This is God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring 
shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Maacah. There is a lot to consider here. There is so much to consider in this chapter that we're going to spend two weeks in it. In the next sermon that I preach from Genesis 22, we're gonna consider what it means that God tests his people. Uh, We're gonna consider how we should respond to those tests and and what it looks like to to sacrifice greatly for the Lord. We're gonna consider how genuine faith results in obvious actions and change of life. But today... With the rest of the time that we have this morning, we are going to consider one thing and one thing only. We have one point from our text this morning, and that is the main point of chapter 22, and it is this. God provides a sacrificial lamb who dies so that his people can live. God provides a sacrificial lamb who dies so that his people can live. I don't know who said it, but, but one theologian said, for, for every one look at yourself, take, take 10 looks at Christ. We're not even gonna look at ourselves this morning and we're gonna take a thousand looks at Christ. That is, there is nothing for you to do today except stare at and behold the glory and love of God the Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for a sinful people, and how God pours his love out on us to redeem us from sin and to set us free for his glorious purposes. That that, that is what today is. If you're thinking to yourself, what do I need to do, John? What do I need to do? You need to sit and be amazed at what God has done. That is what this morning is about. Genesis 22 is not primarily about how we need to be prepared for testing or how we need to be prepared to obey really difficult commands, or how we need to sacrifice even what's most dear to us to follow God. Those are tangential points down down the road. Genesis 22 is primarily about what God has done for us and what he has done for us, according to Genesis 22, is provide a sacrificial lamb who dies so that we can live. We're gonna walk through the passage again We're gonna unpack what's going on here and how it prepares us so clearly for the promised offspring. So I want you to go ahead and look with me at the passage. Look at verse one. It begins after these things. After what things? After the events of Genesis chapter 21. So after the birth and weaning of Isaac, after the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael, and and after the covenant with Abimelech. 
right? It seems even that a, a number of years have passed, we're going to see stuff in this chapter that makes it clear that Isaac is no longer a three-year-old boy. He's clearly probably a teenager by this point because of what hap- happens here. But it says to us in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham. And the fact that God tested Abraham is monumentally important in understanding everything that follows. When we encounter the shocking command that God gives Abraham, a a common response is to recoil in horror. But right from the outset, Moses wants us to know that what we are about to encounter is a test. And the fact that it's a test signals for us that God is up to something here and that it's likely he has something else in mind than Abraham following all the way through on this shocking command. And what is that shocking command with which God tests Abraham? Look at verse two. I want you to look at the words. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You just have to let the enormity of the command sink in, right? Even though that we know that this is a test, Abraham does not know that this is a test, right? We are given information that he didn't have, and the force of the command would have fallen on him like a ton of bricks. It would have struck him like a bolt of lightning, We even gather from the text that God wants us to feel the enormity of it. Look again at how he opens the command. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. It's, It's as though he is preemptively turning the knife in Abraham's heart. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to receive that command from God? You want me to do what? After all these years of waiting, after all of the longing and and all of the heartache, you finally gave us the child that you promised us and you want me to do what with him? How could you command me to do such a thing? But here's the thing. We don't need to imagine how Abraham responded. Moses tells us how he responded. Abraham obeys. He obeys God. Look at verse three. He rose early the next morning. Same language as in chapter 20 when God told him to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. As difficult of a command as that was, Abraham rose early in the morning and did what the Lord said. Here again, he rose early in the morning, made preparations, and went to the land of Moriah. I mean, as shocking as God's command is, we also have to acknowledge how shocking Abraham's response is. I mean, it's what we would call unflinching, unwavering obedience. He does what God told him to do. But it must have been so difficult for me. I I, I get that, but what does Moses want us to see? Abraham obeys. He does what God called him to do. In verse four, we see, you can look there with me, that on the third day, Abraham could see the place from a distance. 
That description should get our attention that something significant is about to go down because throughout scripture, the third day is often associated with significant acts of redemption. Can any of the kids tell me significant redemptive things that happen on the third day in scripture? Go, Abram. Jesus rose on the third day. That's the pinnacle, so whatever anyone says next is gonna come under that, but can anyone else think of another one? There's some mercy. You tell me. Akil. From the book of Exodus. Oh, from the resurrection, yes, when Jesus rose from the dead. Very good. Can anyone think of another one? On the third day, Jonah, the whale spit up Jonah on the third day. The third day throughout scripture is often associated with significant acts of redemption. But it's not just Abraham's obedience that Moses wants us to be wowed by. It's also his faith. Look at what he says in verse five. After they arrive at the mountain, he tells his servants to stay with the donkeys and look at what he says to them. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. All of the verbs here are in the first person plural. We will go, we will worship, we will come again. Abraham is so confident in God's purposes that he tells his servants, we are coming back to you. And I don't think he's lying. You turn to the New Testament, which we'll do in a bit, and the author of Hebrews says about this whole scene that Abraham was so confident in God's promises to him that he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. And in just a moment, we'll see that this isn't the only thing he says that displays his assurance in God's purposes. But before we do, look with me at verses six and seven. It's impossible impossible to meditate on these two verses without coming completely undone. Verse six, Abraham, the father, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac. His beloved son will carry the wood on which he'll shortly be sacrificed. Then in verse seven, the most gut-wrenching line in the entire episode, Isaac asks, Father, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Does he know? Is he starting to put the pieces together? Does he, does he realize what's about to happen? We, we don't know. But notice what Abraham says in verse eight. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering my son. I I don't know how he will do it or when he will do it, but I know he will do it. I have doubted him in these past 25 years, but he has always provided, and I know he will provide now. And then they arrive. The time has come. And again, we're confronted by Abraham's obedience. He doesn't delay. Look at verse nine. No pacing around, 
No wringing of the hands, no pleading for a different path. He simply builds the altar, lays the wood, finds his son Isaac, lays him on the altar, reaches out his hand, he, he takes the knife, he lifts the knife to sacrifice his son, the camera zooms in on his hand, the knuckles whiten as he grips the knife, he's getting ready to do it, and then, Abraham, stop! I mean, you should say, like, thank you, Lord, right? Oh, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that God stopped him from doing it. Hallelujah. God intervened. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham has passed the test. God considers it as good as done. You have not withheld your son from me. And then he looks up, turns around, and what does he see? He sees that his word of assurance to Isaac that God would provide has come true. Look at verse 13. Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham offered the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son, in the place of his son, as a substitute for his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it was even said to the day in Moses' day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The ram dies, Isaac lives. God provides. And then God speaks to Abraham again. Look at verse 16. By myself I swear, declares the Lord. That, that is, what I am about to say, I am saying with the utmost seriousness and certainty, right? When, when humans swear, they, they swear by someone or something greater than themselves. But there is no one greater than the Lord. Because I am the Lord, I swear by myself. Because you have not withheld your son your only son, I will bless you. Because you have obeyed me and passed the test, all of the promises I have made to you will absolutely come true. Then he reiterates all of the promises he's made already. In verse 17, promises again that Abraham will certainly have many descendants. In verse 18, he promises again that his offspring will certainly bring blessing to the nations, but... There's also a new promise about this coming offspring. Look at the second half of verse 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The promised offspring who will crush the serpent and bring blessing, the blessing of salvation to every nation on earth will wage war against his enemies and he will be victorious. He will possess their gates. It's really important in this day and age because to possess the city gates was to defeat the city. If you ruled and owned the city gates, you ruled and owned the city, and the offspring's enemies will not stop him from taking and storming their city gates. None will stop him or stand in his way, and after God makes his final promise to Abraham, 
Abraham returns to his servants with Isaac. And they return to Beersheba. In the final verses of the chapter, we're introduced to one Rebekah, who will become Isaac's wife, and the one through whom the nation of Israel would be born. God's promises are already coming true. I think, though, if we're going to truly appreciate the full weight of this chapter, we have to first read it through the eyes of an Israelite. This letter came first to the nation of Israel before it came to us. It it had something powerful to teach them, and it also has something powerful to teach us. Their entire existence as a people, as a nation, depended on Isaac living. If they were going to come into existence, Isaac would have to live. Isaac, after all, is the child of promise, the one through whom the promise of numerous descendants will come to pass. If Isaac doesn't live, then there won't be numerous descendants. If there's no numerous descendants, then there's no Israel. If Isaac dies, then Israel dies before they've ever lived. As they heard this story for the first time, they would have heard this story as though it was them being loaded with wood and led up the mountain. They would have heard this story as though it was them who watched Abraham build the altar, as though it was them who was bound by Abraham, as though it was them who was laid across the wood, utterly helpless as they watched the knife raised, and they would have shouted for joy when they heard those sweet words from heaven, Abraham, stop! You can imagine the people of Israel, even though they they know the ending, shouting for joy when God stopped Abraham and shouting for joy when God provided the lamb. It's the same thing. You you watch a movie that you love when you already know the ending, but it's a type of movie that you, you just can't get over. And when you see the climactic scene, you're just like, yes! Why are you cheering? Yes, you've seen the movie. It's just so good. I can't not cheer for it. Israel, hearing this story, is bound with Isaac on the wood. Israel, hearing this story, is looking up at the knife, seeing their own death and hearing the words, Stop! Israel will live. The ram will die. Isaac lives. Isaac lives. The lamb died so that Isaac could live, but the lamb didn't die so that just Isaac could live. The lamb died so that Israel could live. Their existence as a people depended on the death of the lamb. But it wasn't just this story that taught them that their life depended on the death of the lamb. Their entire existence taught them that. Think about the Israelites in Egypt hearing this story for the first time. What would they have thought? When God sent the angel of death to strike down all the firstborn of Egypt, Kids, tell me, what protected the Israelites from the same judgment? Adam. The blood of the lamb over the door. Nothing but the blood of the lamb separated Israel from Egypt. Nothing but the blood of the lamb separated Israel 
from Egypt. The lamb died so they could live. Because the Passover lamb died, they lived. Then when God brought them out of Egypt and dwelled among them in the tabernacle and later the temple, he established the day of atonement. Because what are burnt offerings for? To offer atonement for sin. Once a year, the people of Israel would gather together at the temple and the sacrificial lamb was brought forward and the priests laid their hands on the head of the lamb, symbolizing the transfer of the people's sins to the lamb who was then sacrificed. The lamb died so that Israel could live. And then day after day after day and year after year after year, lambs were offered as burnt offerings and sin offerings to atone for sin and cleanse people of their sins. Sins. The lambs died so that Israel could live. And in all of this, throughout all of this time, God was preparing Israel and the world for the long-awaited offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. And what Genesis 22 is teaching us about this offspring is that he would crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin by becoming a sacrificial lamb who would die so that God's people could live. This is why when we come to the New Testament, we should shout for joy when we read John, what John the Baptist says about Jesus in John 1. Can any of the kids tell me what John the Baptist says about Jesus in John 1? What does he call Jesus? He does call him the word. That is very true. Well, John calls him the word. What does John the Baptist call Jesus? Jack. The lamb. The Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, we should shout for joy when we hear those words because Isaac is not just a picture of Israel. Isaac is a picture of all of us. We were bound by the power of sin. We were utterly helpless to free ourselves from sin's dominion and power in our lives. Worse than that, we freely gave ourselves to sin. We, we rejected God and we rejected his purposes and because of that, we were under his judgment. The knife of God's judgment rightly hung over our heads. We were condemned as sinners and destined for death and hell. But before that divine blade fell on us, the Lord Jesus cried, Stop! Do not lay a hand on them. I have come to bear their sins away. I have come to take their place. I have come to offer my life for theirs, I have come to die so that they would live. On the cross, the Lamb of God died so that you and I, by faith, could live. Abundant life now and eternal life with God and the Lamb forever. But you have to see, even in this passage, how Isaac is not only a picture of us. He's also a picture of Christ. I mean, I am confident, I will rarely say something like this, I am confident that when Jesus encountered his disciples after the resurrection and he taught them about how all the Old Testament was about him, that he got to Genesis 22 and he was like, I'm about to blow your mind. Like, well, we're gonna sit on this for a while. 
Even in the passage, Isaac is not just a picture of us, but of Christ. As Isaac carries the wood of his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah, so Jesus would carry the wood of the cross to his own death. What is Moriah? The next place we find the Mount of Moriah in the Old Testament, it is where the temple is built. The lamb dies in the same place the presence of God dwells with mankind on earth. Moriah is later called Jerusalem. Jesus ascends the mount in Jerusalem to die as the lamb and to be torn down as the temple so that the true temple could be built and God's people could have life. Isaac foreshadows for us Jesus by carrying the wood of the cross to his own death. And it's not just Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain that foreshadows Jesus' death on the cross. It's also his deafening silence. For him to carry wood up a hill or a mountain would mean that he would have to be at least a teenager by this point. If he's a teenager, Abraham is 110 years or older, right? If Isaac wanted to put up a fight, he could put up a fight. There's no fighting. There's no screaming. There's no trying to get away. He's silently bound, silently laid on the wood, silently preparing to be sacrificed. He doesn't even cry out when the knife is lifted overhead because he's preparing us for the Lord Jesus who Isaiah predicted would be like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The true lamb of God and the true Isaac went silently to the cross because he went willingly to the cross. It's why he came. I have the power to lay my life down and I have the power to take it up. He came to save sinners. And he came to save sinners by dying so that dead sinners could live, so that bound sinners could be set free. And with our free and living tongues, proclaim with the loudest of possible voices, God provides. On the mount of the Lord, it has been provided, it is provided, and it always will be provided. And I want the kids to see this. I have a question for you. This is not an easy question. Perhaps this might be better for the teenagers who are here. This may take some thought. I want, you, I want to ask you a question. What made Jesus' death on our behalf effective? What gave his death power to save us? Dorothy. He did take the punishment that we deserve, but what gave that death in our place power? His submission to God, his perfect obedience, his righteous life, the fact that he's also the God-man, but the fact that he offered a perfectly righteous sacrifice. He perfectly obeyed God. What gave his death in our place its power was his obedience. And here we see how not only Isaac and the lamb foreshadow Jesus, but how Abraham foreshadows Jesus. We are all well aware at this point in our study through Genesis of Abraham's failings. He failed in chapter 12, he failed in 16, he failed in chapter 20. Abraham was made righteous by faith alone. He received the promises by faith. But the emphasis here is on Abraham's obedience. He does all 
that God calls him to do, and he does it without hesitating. He is unflinchingly committed to accomplishing the mission God gives him. And even as he approaches the place where he was told to sacrifice Isaac, he confidently declares that he and Isaac will return and that God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And though he was justified by faith, God says twice in verses 15 and 18, the reason that all of his promises are guaranteed to Abraham is because he obeyed. He passed the test and in so doing secured God's promises to his people. And in all of this, he foreshadows the truly obedient one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't pass some tests and not others. Jesus didn't obey sometimes and not others. He, he obeyed at all times. Even when he was tested, the pinnacle of his testing by Satan in the wilderness, he passed with flying colors. He remained unflinchingly committed to obeying the mission God had given him to the very end. Not the mission of sacrificing someone else, but the mission of laying down his own life on the cross. What does Paul say about him in Philippians 2 verse 8? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And just as Abraham expressed his confidence that God would provide as he approached the place where he was going to sacrifice Isaac, so Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem and the place where he would be crucified, confidently told his disciples, I will suffer many things at the hands of the scribes and the chief priests. They will kill me. And on the third day, I will rise again. I am coming back to you. And because Jesus obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has guaranteed that all who trust in him will receive all of the promises of the new covenant. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because my son has obeyed to the point of death, you have been justified. You have been redeemed, forgiven, adopted, set free, and made righteous. Because my son has obeyed, you will be sanctified. You will be preserved. You will be kept. And you will be glorified. Because my son has obeyed, eternal life is yours. Hope is yours. Heaven is yours. And more than that, I am yours. Jesus has secured for now and eternity for all of God's people, all of God's promises in the new covenant, which primarily and ultimately are God himself. God will be your God and you will be his people. And none of this will be taken from you because the Son has destroyed the gates of his enemies. Not even death itself can stop God's promises from coming true to you. This is why Jesus told his disciples in the New Testament, the gates of hell will not prevail against me. You know who I am. I'm the Lamb of God. I'm the King of kings. No gates will prevail against me. I'm going to storm the gates of hell. You're coming with me, and we're winning. His offspring will possess the gates of his enemies. And it's here that we cannot miss that Genesis 22 doesn't just teach us about what Jesus has done for us. It also teaches us about the depth of the Father's love for us. The, the horror that we feel in response to God's command to Abraham, the gut-wrenching anguish, right, 
that anguish we feel as they climb the mountain together, that the shock of it all is overwhelming. And yet, the anguish and shock of the scene should transform into absolute astonishment, amazement, and awe. You see, when when people read this scene and get angry at what God commands and they shut the Bible because they just don't want to have anything to do with it, they are tragically missing the whole point. The point is not that Isaac is going to sacrifice, that Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. It's that the Father above is going to give his only beloved son to die so that you and I would live. This passage is about the Father's love for his people. God is preparing the world for what he would do to save us from sin. Why do you think God repeats himself, stressing that Abraham is to offer his son, his only son, the one whom you love? Three different times God stresses that exact phrase. Abraham is to sacrifice his son, his only son, whom he loves. He wants us to see that this is what he did to save us. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? The agony that we feel when we read this chapter should turn to astonishment because Genesis 22 is foreshadowing for us the love of God the Father for sinners like you and me. The Father out of the immensity of his love for sinners, out of the immensity of his love for you individually, did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all to die so that you and I could live. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. We were bound in sin, enslaved to sin, could not free ourselves from sin. In fact, we gave ourselves to it, but God, out of the immensity of his love for us, put forward his son, the Lamb of God, as the substitutionary and atoning sacrifice. He put Jesus forward to die in our place so that if we trust in him, we would be completely forgiven of our sins and guaranteed eternal life. He put Jesus forward so that if you would put all of your trust in him for salvation, you would be able to say, because the Lamb of God died, I will live. That is the central message of this chapter for you and me today. There are other important things that we're gonna talk about the next time that we talk about Genesis chapter 22, but the central message of this chapter is not what you have to do, but what God has done. God has provided the sacrificial lamb. God has given his son. So if you're asking what you must do to be saved, God's answer to you today is simple. Look to the lamb. Look to the lamb of God who I have put forward to die in your place. Look to the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Trust in my provision of the lamb. 
rest in him. Because the lamb died, you can live. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all glory and honor and power now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Help us to look to him and to behold his glory and thank you for sending him to die so that we could live. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.